This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. This podcast is supported by FedEx. FedEx offers fast delivery, more visibility, simple returns, and weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. population on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. With FedEx, you get picture proof of delivery, ensuring you always know where your package is. Returns are simple with packageless and paperless returns. Plus, FedEx Ground is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. So, what are you waiting for? See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. Welcome to America Change Forever from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Gil Gross. President-elect Joe Biden's inauguration is just a couple of weeks away, but this is not a transition like any other. And to see what's really going on, let's check in with Major Garrett, Chief Washington Correspondent for CBS News, as well as host of the podcast The Takeout, which is also available on CBS. And Happy New Year, Major. Happy New Year, Gil. Great to be with you. Well, now that we had this nice friendly talk, let's talk about lack of friendliness and cooperation. Yes. Which can be a big story, especially on defense and national security, where you don't want a new administration blindsided by something like word of a possible planned 9-11 style attack in the United States or whatever. What is going on, or more to the point, what is not going on between the two administrations? So the Defense Department, particularly under the Trump administration, has been reluctant to engage the Biden transition team directly. They keep saying, well, we'll schedule meetings, but these things sort of long since been scheduled and they should be on an almost day to day basis. Now, there's one part of this that I think it's invoked that is probably in need of context. There's the sense that, well, because of the Florida recount and the protracted dispute over the 2000 election, George W. Bush's transition was therefore telescoped down necessarily because of the dispute over that election, and that left him blindsided for 9-11. Having covered both that recount and every day of the George W. Bush presidency up to and after 9-11, that's not the whole story. I mean, look, the George W. Bush presidency was focused elsewhere. There were, even during his time in office in early 2001, warnings that he just did not sufficiently heed. So it wasn't that the transition left him blindsided. He had other priorities. And so when we talk about transitions not working as smoothly as they could, we shouldn't just immediately conclude, well, the last time there was one that was truncated, 9-11 happened. I mean, there's a broader context around that. That being said, this all goes back to a deep-seated grievance that President Trump simply will not let go of, which is he believes political actors in the outgoing Obama administration, though cooperative on the transition, did things to undermine his administration once it took office, the Russia investigation and the Steele dossier. And for that reason, he's just not interested in cooperating with the incoming Biden administration and will do the absolute bare minimum. And in the case of national security, that's exactly what's happening. Okay. And and that is actually, I guess, the best possible spin here. The president just doesn't think that, that Biden is worth 
helping out here. You know, there's also fears. And let me ask you about this for whatever buzz there may or may not be in Washington, that the present administration has wind of something that could happen soon happen to make Biden look inadequate or is planning some last minute something, an attack in Iran or something like that. You know, generally, these would be like from some kind of uh, fiction book about politics or some 1960s movie or something but these are strange times so if you heard anything no nothing like nothing along the lines of a last minute attack being planned but president trump has made it no secret he will keep all of his political options open and if his political options include running in 2024 and he wants to sort of make that clear as this new administration begins he's already campaigning to defeat joe biden So we have another story here going on about Vice President Pence. Congressman Louis Gohmert has filed a suit against the vice president trying to stop him from allowing the major swing state electoral votes from being finally certified. It is the vice president's job to do that. He actually opens the envelopes of each state. Now, nobody that I know thinks that this is going to work as a way of denying Biden the presidency, but it puts Pence in a interesting situation. If he has a political future, it's probably as a supporter of President Trump. So whatever he may think of this action, if he counts those votes without some kind of fight, he may be sealing the fate on his political future. So what have we heard about what Mike Pence might do? It is a complete mystery. It is a black box right here in Washington, D.C. The former vice president, uh, soon-to-be former Vice President Pence, has kept a completely low profile, said nothing, authorized no one on his behalf to speak on his behalf, betrayed nothing about what his intentions are. And if you're asking yourself, what is the current situation with the Republican Party? It is, I believe, at a dramatic and very important historic crossroads. It is either going to be the Republican Party with roots that go back to Abraham Lincoln and a set of policy principles and procedures to reach those, inculcate those who support them, build a national consensus around them, and be a freestanding institution in American politics, or it's going to be the tool of Donald Trump. It cannot be both. It simply cannot. And the question that may rip this party apart is, do you believe in federalism, meaning that the states have certain assigned constitutional responsibilities, in this case, to run elections, time, manner, and place, as the Constitution says, and do you believe that elections that are held properly and are certified have to be respected. And if you don't, then you are essentially taking the Republican Party along with President Trump in a completely different direction. And Mike Pence will find himself at the very crossroads of that essential question. Because everything about this election, yes, every part, everything about this election in court after court after court, with plenty of Trump-appointed federal justices, has said, show the evidence, there isn't any, show the point of law, there isn't any, show the standing, there isn't any, over and over and over again, not once, not twice, but dozens upon dozens of times. And yet, this mythology persists, that something was so awry in this election, so fraudulent that the president has to upend the Constitution, upend a law written after the contested election of 1876 to resolve this. None of that is true, yet the mythology has become such that it's now, at least in the minds of some Republicans and Trump supporters, an imperative, an imperative. And if the country doesn't do this, meaning topple the election, keep President Trump in power, the entire fate of the republic will collapse. And Mike Pence has to deal with those Trump supporters because he will be at the center of this hurricane 
on January 6th. Now, he has all sorts of procedural rules that protect him, this law that protects him. He can say, I'm just following the rules. But if a Senate Republican agrees with a grievance filed by a House Republican, then Mike Pence has to send the chambers to have these things debated out and preside over the entire process, which ultimately will lead to a lack of resolution, meaning the votes ultimately will be certified. We all know that's going to happen. This is a futile effort, a futile effort based on a futile effort. That doesn't mean Mike Pence won't suffer politically because he is enmeshed in the Trumpian world. And anything that perceived by that world that is not full-throatedly in support of President Trump and this mythological sense that the election was stolen from him puts Mike Pence in a weakened political position if he has any hope of succeeding Donald Trump in 2024 or 2028. He didn't ask to be placed there, but he is going to be there, and it's going to be a rough spot if, in fact, he has any willingness or appetite or ambition to be a national figure in a Republican Party so heavily influenced by President Trump. Final thing, Major, there's another name that we have to bring up here. Mitch McConnell, the Senate Majority Leader, in essentially saying that the election challenges are over as not only sending a message to Trump, but I take it declaring, look, Republicans, you may still love Trump, you may still worship Trump, you may still believe Trump, you can even believe that he, you know, had the election stolen from him, but... I'm the number one Republican in this country now in terms of actual power, period, end of story. And how much of a fight does McConnell have in bending the GOP to his will now? It's a very interesting question, Gil, and you've identified it perfectly. Mitch McConnell is the one who gets things done. If you want things done, you've got to go through Mitch McConnell. And he wants Republicans to understand that, remember that, and revere and respect and fear that. President Trump has gotten in his way in certain respects. They've also worked collaboratively together on tax reform, regulatory reform, and most certainly the Supreme Court and the lower federal benches. Where their ambitions have aligned, they have worked very well together. But now Trump is leaving for some period of time, maybe forever, maybe for four years, but Mitch McConnell is staying. And he wants this to be sort of a Maginot line for him and other Republicans. Don't cross me on this. This is a futile effort. I don't endorse futility. I'm involved in politics that matters and politics that sticks. And I'm not interested in running into flaming arrows just to show my allegiance to any political figure, Donald Trump or anyone else. So I'm telling you, Republicans, don't do this. Don't make fools of yourself. Don't make a mockery of federalism. Don't make a mockery of the Constitution. Don't make a mockery of this great political party. But others, so heavily influenced by Trump's approach to politics and Republican Party politics itself, are prepared to do that. And it's going to be a kind of a metaphorical cage match. Who's the ruler in Washington? Outgoing Trump or steady Sticking around, Mitch. And reporting on it all will be Major Garrett, Chief Washington Correspondent for CBS News. And you can keep up with him as well as host of the podcast, The Takeout. Major, it's always a pleasure. And it looks like this year starts off quickly. Thanks, Gil. Much more ahead on America Changed Forever here on the CBS Audio Network. Welcome back to America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Gil Gross. President-elect Joe Biden has his work cut out for him. He's going to take on the battle against COVID, and leadership of the Senate won't be resolved until the coming week. The way things have gone lately, maybe not even then. But how far can he go in his first 100 days is a big question. With some possible answers, Steve Elmendorf, former chief of staff and senior advisor to House Democratic leader Dick Gebhardt, and co-founder of the group Subject Matter. And if he's not familiar from his many TV appearances, then you'll take comfort knowing the new Republican 
Facebook once named him one of Washington's least known, most influential people, which I guess, Steve, is better than the other way around. (laughs) Steve, before we get to issues, let's talk tactics. Biden was a creature of the Senate, 36 years there, and his default mode was to go through the often painful method of working with Congress to get things done. And he talks about wanting to go back to that. But his experience in eight years as vice president was that the GOP Senate will block him at every turn. So what do you think we're going to see Biden do? Try to work with the Senate or rule by executive order? Well, I think you have to believe what he said, which is he thinks that if you engage with the other side, that you have the opportunity to potentially come up with compromise. I think the difference between him and Donald Trump and potentially between him and Barack Obama, frankly, is going to be his level of engagement. You know, Obama never uh, thought much of of a lot of the Congress. Uh, Joe Biden is a preacher of the Congress. He lived there for a long time. And I think he's going to take the attitude that I'm going to engage with these people. I'm going to bring them to the White House. I'm going to eat meals with them. I'm going to you know, make myself ubiquitous with them. And I'm going to make it really hard for them to say no. Well, there are some things that Republicans were willing to work with Democrats on in years past. And the question is, should he go quickly to one of those issues? You know, an example would be infrastructure. But with so much money having been spent on the U.S. economy because of COVID, is any initiative like that dead for now? I don't think so. But I think the first thing uh, that he'll do is is obviously COVID. Uh, and COVID is a big topic and involves both health and the economy. And, and for stimulating the economy could potentially include infrastructure. But I think for the first six months, if not first year of the Biden administration, uh, it's all going to be about COVID. It's it's you know, remember the famous James Carville line in 1992. It's the economy, stupid. Uh, I think uh, it's the COVID stupid will be uh, the hallmark of the first year of a Biden administration and everything they do, whether it be infrastructure or other issues, is going to be related to solving the twin crises of the COVID health crisis and the COVID economic crisis. Which brings up a problem in the messaging in these first 100 days. Progressives are going to want fast action on things like immigration, and Biden has promised action on immigration. But if it seems like he's spending too much time on things other than COVID and the resulting deaths and the resulting business ruin, it may be resented by some people who think he's taking the eye off the ball. Well, I think he can do, you know, multiple things at once. I think particularly on the legislative front, COVID is going to be uh, number one. Uh, but, you know, the president, as we've seen uh, with Donald Trump, has a lot of other levers he can use, a lot of tools. And I think he'll use executive orders and uh, other actions that he can take unilaterally to deal with issues like immigration, uh, to deal with, with climate, where the Congress may be less interested on the Republican side, to deal with the racial justice issues he's talked about. But I also think all of the communities. Uh, in in our coalition, which care about all those other issues, they all are being impacted uh, directly by COVID. And I think everybody understands that that is issue number one. And that once you can't really deal with anything else until we've moved beyond that problem. And of course, much of this depends on Georgia. And even if Democrats were to win both of those races, and they look perilously close for both parties at the moment you and I are talking Even if they were to win both those races, that would give a great deal of power to pivot votes like conservative Democrats. For instance, West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin. I think a lot of Democrats are looking at that situation thinking, boy, if we get both seats in Georgia, you know, we're really going to be able to put through a more progressive agenda. And I wonder if that would really be the case. I think it is, actually. I don't you know, it's not the same as having 53 votes or 54 votes. 50-50 is is very close. And one or two people... um, can uh, make it difficult for you to do things. Uh, But I think, and and the House, as we know, is going to be a very close four or five seat margin. Uh, 
but I think everybody is going to be unified in wanting uh, to help Joe Biden be successful. And if we were to win uh, the Georgia races, which are very, you know basically ties from everything we've read, um, then we're going to be in a situation where people are going to have to decide, do they want to be on the team with Joe Biden to help him get things done or not? And that's going to be a lot of pressure on all Democrats to be unified and be part of the group. It is. And Joe Biden is known as somebody who wants to bring both sides together and speak to both sides. He's talked a great deal about wanting to be, you know, everybody's president, even people who did not vote for him. But one of his problems is that though the election showed a majority of Americans were done with President Trump, it also showed they're not yet sold in the Democratic Party, which actually lost House seats and didn't do that much in the Senate. So how carefully does he tread or is careful treading really the sign of lack of leadership. Where do you think he's going to go? Well, the thing about Joe Biden is I think he's been extremely transparent about what he wants to do. Um, if you look at his campaign and what he said and his website, you know, they, they put out all the policies they want to do. They may not be able to get everything they want, but he's certainly going to try. And again, I think that the, um, the process of engagement uh, will, be a, will, will help him get further along than some people think. Uh, I worked in the Congress... Uh, when George W. Bush was president. And, you know, we didn't like George W. Bush and we had a lot of issues with him. But at the end of the day, he every morning, every week, every Wednesday, he brought the four leaders of the Congress together um, at the White House to talk about the agenda. And um, and yeah, we didn't again, we didn't agree on everything. But just that weekly get together, uh, we found some common areas of agreement. And I think Biden's going to do something similar. And I think the American people, while they are deeply divided, I do think they want the people in Washington to try and get some things done. And it may be naive to think they're going to get a lot of big things done. But I do think in the face of this pandemic, they will be able to find some some common areas of agreement and do some things in the first year to help uh, with the health crisis and help with the economic crisis. OK, let's get to some specifics. One of the things that President-elect Biden has said that he wants to do and wants to do quickly is get all these schools open. One of the problems that they've had with that, especially convincing teachers that it might be safe being in a classroom of possibly asymptomatic students who they still might catch the virus from is making the schools safe. Uh, President Trump early on rejected funding for schools. He said it was going to be too expensive to uh, put things in like, you know, dividers and more portable um, classrooms in order to bring classroom size down and things like that. So to get the schools open, I take that President-elect Biden is going to have to do something about COVID funding for the schools. He is. And again, I think that's something where you can find people from both parties that are going to want to help. Um, it's clear that Americans, uh, again, across the board, red state, blue state, all states uh, view getting their kids back in school as, you know, one of the top jobs that government needs to do. And to do that, there's going to have, you know, vaccines and testing and money for PPE, et cetera. And, you know, look, I think that's something he's going to have to go to the Congress and say, we have a national strategy. Here is my national strategy of how to get kids back in school that involves vaccinating and testing and more money. And, you know, I think a lot of Republicans will agree to that because I think a lot of their constituents also want to get their kids back in school. And again, it'll be a compromise. They're not going to do uh, everything Joe Biden wants. But I actually think that issue in particular, I would put high on the list of a place where I think you could find some bipartisan compromise to get something done. 
Okay, not as important as COVID, not as important as the economy, but you know, a raised hand at the first news conference after he is sworn in as president is going to be something like, look, the Trump administration started this tax investigation of your son, Hunter Biden. Do you let your Justice Department continue that? Do you appoint a special counsel to insulate yourself from it? What, what do you do? You've advised presidents. What should he do? Uh, I think he said the other day pretty clearly what he's going to do, which is he's going to have an attorney general who is the people's uh, attorney general, not the president's attorney general. And he's going to leave it to the professionals at the Department of Justice to make decisions about issues like that, as they should. One of the reasons we're in the mess that we are with COVID, getting back to that, is that the infrastructure for protecting America was not only diminished over the last several years, but was never good enough to begin with. We've had people like Pulitzer Prize winning science correspondent Laurie Garrett saying for more than 30 years that America was inadequately protected against the very kind of thing that we're facing now. So besides taking on what we're facing now, do you think it would be in the president's interest, whether in those first 100 days, but certainly within that first year, to build, not just rebuild the infrastructure that was there, but build a new infrastructure to assure Americans this ain't happening again? Absolutely. I think I think the first thing they have to do is look at the existing institutions, uh, whether it be the CDC or the FDA or the NIH, and figure out HHS, what do we need to do to put them in a position uh, to respond to a future pandemic? It, you know, I don't know if we're going to need new, uh, new structures to deal with it, but I think you know, it's a very high priority to figure out how do we rebuild people's faith in the government and how do we rebuild the institutions of government that should uh, have been ready to deal with this um, last year and hopefully we'll be ready to deal with it in the future. He's got his work cut out for him, any president does, but especially just even getting the vaccine out is going to be a major accomplishment in those first hundred days and beyond. Steve Elmendorf, former chief of staff and senior advisor to House Democratic leader Dick Gephardt, an advisor to presidents and presidential campaigns, and now also co-founder and leader of the group Subject Matter. Steve, pleasure talking to you. This is going to be a busy time. Thanks for the input. Thank you. Have a good day. You're listening to America Change Forever from the CBS Audio Network. Have you ever covered a carpet stain with a rug? Ignored a leaky faucet? Pretended your half-painted living room is supposed to look like that? Well, you're not alone. We've all got unfinished home projects. But there's an easier way. When you download Thumbtack, it's easier to care for your home from top to bottom. Pull out your phone and in just a few steps, you can search, chat, and book highly rated pros right in your neighborhood. Plus, you'll know what to tackle next because Thumbtack is the app that shows you what to do, who to hire, and when. So say goodbye to all those unfinished home projects and say hello to caring for your home the easier way. Download Thumbtack and start a project today. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. 
Welcome back to America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Gil Gross. COVID will be with us most of the coming year, even with the vaccine, though there are hopes that by summer its effects will be somewhat neutralized. Still, even as many jobs come back, some won't. Some new jobs around health and preventing this from ever happening again may be created, and many other jobs will be, as the title in the show says, change forever. Taking a look at the workforce in 2021 is the CEO of Payscale, a software company that helps both employers and employees make decisions about careers and compensation. Scott Torrey. Scott, good to talk to you again. Gail, it's great to talk to you. And let's start with something optimistic. What look to be the hot jobs for 2021? Uh, Gil, there's a lot of uh, interesting news in our in our most recent survey that we just conducted around wage growth, hot jobs, and who's happy. To give you some of the highlights, Let's start with those jobs that are that are super in demand right now. You see them around. You see the health screeners up on 136%, personal shoppers up 125%. And the really interesting one, Gil, is recreational vehicle technicians up over 100%. That is unexpected. So at a time when some people are hunkering down, some people are getting in their RVs, which I guess is kind of a, a bubble and seeing America. Listen, I think I think you're right. I think some of these are a bubble, but they're also uh, becoming more and more systemic as people begin to use them. They begin to like them. The really interesting trend to watch over time is the reversal. There's a lot of uh, indications in the in the data that says these trends will be with us for a long time. Yeah, I wasn't surprised when you said people like health screeners, you know, the health professions, because there's going to be a lot of action and a lot of people saying, look, we can never let anything like this happen again. We've got to bulk up our health infrastructure. So that's not a surprise. What did surprise me is you mentioned happiness. Even though health workers have been ravaged by this virus, long hours, many deaths, many people getting sick, they're among the happiest or at least most fulfilled workers out there. Yeah, that was that's a very astute point. And it was one of the things that the data uh, really showed us is that not only did they disclose it, about 72% of them feel more stressed than ever in their jobs. Over 70% of them uh, feel more satisfied than ever. And I think it's just a testament to the, the healthcare workers that we have out there that are just rising to the challenge. They're, they're dealing with the adversity, but they're recognizing that they're, what they're doing matters and is having a huge impact. And there's tremendous satisfaction in that. Yeah. And among the happiest industries are things where people are doing things for other people, nonprofits, education, things like that, which is also interesting. Yeah. Those three hot trends uh, that we saw was certainly technology, because now more than ever, innovation matters. And if you see the hockey stick curve of some of the technologies, they're working on really big problems that are bringing people together in the most challenging times. And, and frankly, winning teams are seeing rewards uh, for that that effort. Nonprofits, uh, where so much of the, the suffering is being mitigated, uh, is in super high demand and super satisfaction. And then finally, we've already talked about healthcare, and you mentioned education, all in the top four. Yeah, and we talked about technology. Salary compensation also looks to be great in technology. And of course, more people, we complain about it all the time, the technology, how invasive it is in our lives and everything, but it's also enabled a lot of people to be able to get through this by being able to work at home. So looking at the trends in 2021, how much is the skill of being able to work at home figuring into the future of work as far as we can tell? Yeah. So I think the important thing to do is to kind of put that in context of of where we are and where we're going and every company being forced to come up with a strategy for the future of remote work. It's what we talked about in our last call. It continues to be a super hot topic. And really, there's three strategies that the companies are looking at. Am I going to continue uh, with this uh, 100% remote work? Am I going to go 100% back to the way we were before in the office? Or am I going to pursue a hybrid strategy? And now to get to the heart of your question, 
each of those approaches has different skills that are required in order to be uh, maximally effective. And so some of the things that made you very effective in an office might be different and might be differently rewarded than those that can be proven to be very, very effective uh, remote. And some of the skills of being remote are different. And so there's this massive change that's happening in terms of what is required to be great at your jobs and to get the maximum reward. And it's a trend that every company needs to have a point of view around. Yeah, which means the people in HR, where you expect a a rise in the size and importance of, the, of that field, the people in HR are going to have to adjust what they're looking for in employees. Yeah, as HR uh, companies are, or HR representatives are largely our customer, I'm talking to them every day. And there's this, and they also are amongst the most satisfied because they recognize that they're having a huge impact uh, in their company strategy. And there's really two different strategies. There's the strategy we just talked about in terms of remote work and how to maximize the talent opportunity there. But the other one is the 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 other uh, really big factor in, of 2020 is this move towards pay equity and this increased visibility driven by some of the social pressures of Black Lives Matter, but just the recognition that it's the right thing to do to deal with this issue. And so HR is on the forefront of these two mega trends of remote work and pay equity. And what they're desperately seeking are the tools, the data, and the information to inform that strategy. And they're doing a fantastic job responding. And lesson learned, 2021, even after COVID, is not going to be necessarily returned to what we had before, but something entirely different for many people, maybe very, very much better. Scott Torrey is the CEO of PayScale. Scott, as always, I appreciate this. Thank you. Gil, thank you for the time. Enjoyed it very much. Cheers. You're listening to America Change Forever from the CBS Audio Network. Welcome back to America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Gil Gross. The COVID crisis story and the American economy are two stories that are completely intertwined. The rise of the first caused the fall of the second. And now, ahead for the new president of the nation is both a health recovery and an economic one. Let's talk about the economic part with noted economist Mark Zandi, the chief economist of Moody's Analytics. Mark, good to talk to you. With this winter surge in the virus, many businesses are again under pressure. Student loan payments are going to have to be paid again. There's been talk of recession, fears of eviction. Where are we? We're struggling. Uh, The economy is uh, close to stalling out, uh, in in part because, as you point out, the uh, pandemic continues to intensify infections, hospitalizations, and deaths. And Uh, More local officials across the country uh, are determining that they need to restrain business activity to contain the virus. And then, of course, nervous households are self-quarantining, and that's uh, weighing on economic activity. So uh, the economy is struggling. I I wouldn't be surprised if we see some resumption of job loss and higher unemployment over the next uh, month, two or three. Fortunately, we got that stimulus package through Congress, and that should begin to help relatively soon. But even with that, I think it's going to be a struggle here for the at least the uh, into the early part of 2021. You know, one of the economic uh, situations that the new president will be dealing with is what to do about student loans. Is it an idea that pays off, or is it just something to get votes? Uh, from an economic perspective, I think it's on the margin. Uh, you know, in fact, I think uh, Biden is coming around to that view. Last I heard him talk about this issue, he was talking about perhaps $10,000 in loan forgiveness and perhaps limit that to uh, student loan borrowers that are of lower income and lesser means. Because as you know, many student loan borrowers are from high income households, uh, really don't need the help. 
So, you know, I think it's kind of marginal. It certainly wouldn't be where I would focus my energy and use my political capital uh, you know, to try to help the economy out. Uh, I think there are other better things that uh, uh, lawmakers, the Biden administration should spend their time on. Such as where should they be spending their time? Well, uh, the people that really need it uh, really are hurting. I, I mean, uh, unemployed workers, uh, uh, renters who, uh, because of the pandemic, haven't been able to pay their rent. So they owe tens of billions of dollars in, in back rent. Uh, small businesses that, uh, you know, had to shut down or sort of significantly curtail their business because of the pandemic. Uh, the airlines, many of the recipients of the funds of the $900 billion package that just got passed uh, are the folks that need it the most. And, uh, you know, unfortunately that 900 billion uh, under most scenarios probably only takes these hard pressed households and businesses through March. That's when the extra UI benefits end and the money for small businesses will probably run out. And I don't think the pandemic will be over by March. So we'll probably have to re- uh, come back and help these folks out again. So. Yeah, I think that's where we should spend our energy and our resources, uh, where where the need is most significant. Not not saying that student loan borrowers can't use some help, particularly lower income student loan borrowers. Uh, uh, but, you know, as you know, there's been a moratorium on student loan payments now for quite some time since the pandemic hit. That could be extended by executive order. So that may be another way just to provide a little bit of relief. Don't go all the way to uh, forgiving debt, but at least uh, delaying uh, uh, payments until on the other side of the pandemic and people are back to work and, and incomes are rising again consistently across all Americans. I mentioned one of the things that may hold back the economy is people fearing eviction from rental places or people unable to pay their mortgage, even at the low rates we have right now, because there's no housing inventory that's raised rents and home prices, the breaking point. What can we do? Would it be worth doing some kind of stimulus specifically for the home building industry to get us out of this inventory mess? Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, I mean, at the, most immediately, obviously, is the rental eviction crisis. We've got, uh, at least according to census, uh, uh, as of late uh, November, early December, nearly 11 million renters that were delinquent on their rental payment uh, payments. And that's probably two to three times more than you would typically see. And obviously, if uh, they were to be evicted in the middle of winter, in the middle of a pandemic, that would be uh, very disconcerting uh, for them and, and for, I think, everyone else and, and uh, have significant economic implications. So I do think uh, uh, they we we need uh, lawmakers do need to work on making sure that that does not happen. Fortunately, in that $900 billion package, there was $25 billion set aside for uh, helping out uh, delinquent uh, renters. And that should that should help. It probably isn't enough and probably will need to be revisited. Longer run, though, you make a great point, and that is we do have a an affordable housing crisis. We had this even before the pandemic, uh, a very severe shortage of uh, homes f- uh, for uh, lower middle income households, work, so-called workforce housing. And this is really a supply problem. It's, you can't solve this problem by, you know, lowering mortgage rates or making mortgage loans more uh, available, uh, that, because that, all that will do is just cause house prices uh, to rise even more because there just isn't enough supply. So uh, we do need to work on trying to address that issue. And there's a couple of different ways one can do that, uh, helping to, uh, for example, fund the housing trust fund and the capital magnet fund. These are funds that have been established, funded at very low levels, but have been established to try to uh, provide funds to builders and uh, other developers that rehab 
uh, old housing stock, uh, older housing stock to try to make it uh, you know, viable for workforce housing and low, lower income housing. Also, I do think you know, one of the constraints on uh, more affordable housing are very restrictive zoning uh, uh, rules and regulations, high permitting costs, particularly post-financial crisis. And there are things the federal government can do to incense state and local governments, because that's local governments, obviously, who set these uh, zoning and uh, restrictions and, and the permitting fees uh, to incent them to uh, make it easier for builders to develop that kind of housing. So there are some things that we can do, but that, that's going to take time. That's not a problem that can be solved. It's a, it's a problem that developed over the past five, six, seven years. It's going to take at least that long to uh, solve that problem. Okay. Final thing. We talk about infrastructure a lot because it's one of the hopeful things. It's one of the things where it's hope Democrats and Republicans may be able to work together. The interstate highway system and its bridges are over a half a century old at this point. Urban water systems are ancient, so are sewage facilities in most places. But the COVID crisis somewhat underscored the need quite dramatically for internet access. How much of a necessity is it for the American economy to move on, especially as more and more people go to remote work and more and more companies seem to be abandoning leased space, getting comfortable with people being able to work remotely? How important is it for the economy for us to build up our internet infrastructure? It's critical. I think infrastructure broadly, I think you're, you're exactly right. I think there is a, a lot of bipartisan support for uh, us as a nation investing more in all kinds of infrastructure, you know, basic stuff, roads and bridges and water sewer systems. But, uh, you know, as you, as you pointed out uh, in this pandemic, uh, it's very obvious that we are all reliant as households and business people on uh, a well-functioning telecommunication system and on the Internet. Uh, that's key to work from home, work from anywhere. It's key to online shopping and banking. It's key to in-home entertainment. You know, all our all the technologies we're using critically depend on a good internet infrastructure, and uh, we should be as a nation investing in that. And this is something that can help communities everywhere across the country uh, and get uh, many of the uh, unemployed uh, uh, because of the pandemic uh, folks that aren't going back to their previous jobs because they're they're gone forever you know, getting them back to work. So this is a place where I think uh, hopefully the Biden administration can come to terms with uh, the next Congress and pass a piece of legislation, perhaps in the spring, summer, or fall of 2021, because that will be very important to get getting the economy back to full employment as fast as possible. And that is the goal for everybody, one hopes. Economist Mark Zandi is chief economist of Moody's Analytics. And Mark, happy new year to you. Thanks for being with us. Thank you so much. Thanks for the opportunity and Happy New Year. It's a low bar, but 2021 ought to be a lot better than 2020. One would hope. You're listening to America Change Forever from the CBS Audio Network. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Every day, our world gets a little more connected. But a little further apart. But then, there are moments that remind us to be more human. Thank you for calling Amica Insurance. Hey, uh, I was just in an accident. Don't worry, we'll get you taken care of. At Amica, we understand that looking out for each other isn't new or groundbreaking. It's human. Amica, empathy is our best policy. 
Welcome back to America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Gil Gross. The sign of the times is women challenging authoritarian regimes and paying the price. First, China, where a journalist has been on a hunger strike after being imprisoned for reporting on the virus breakout in Wuhan. Here's CBS News Asian correspondent Remy Innocencio in Beijing. Her name is Zhang Zhan. She's 37 years old, and when the coronavirus first appeared in Wuhan, she was actually pretty popular with China's netizens because she was showing them what she was seeing herself through her video blogs. But this video on May 13 ended up being her last post after she criticized the government's COVID containment measures. That, of course, included a lockdown that ballooned to include an estimated 35 million people across central China. Now, her lawyer says she's had a feeding tube forcibly inserted into her stomach and her arms have been restrained, her left arm in front of her, her right arm behind her back, to stop her from pulling that feeding tube out. Now, while we were in Wuhan on December 1st, reporting on the first reported symptoms of COVID, we actually met with Zhang Zhang's lawyer, sat down with him about her case. He didn't want his identity to be known because he's being harassed, but he shared with us his criticisms that Zhang Zhang told him. She thinks what the government did was far from enough, that the government is negligent. She thinks the fear people have towards the government is actually bigger than what they have towards the virus. As for what Zhang Zhan said on her video blogs, that was factual. But everyone expresses their opinions based on what they see. This kind of reporting should also be protected. The government should be prudent and protect freedom of speech. And Zhang Zhan's lawyer also told us he thinks he's being followed by minders and that his wife and child have also been harassed. But that hasn't stopped him. He says he believes in justice and he wants it to be served. As for his client, Zhang Zhan, she remains in detention in Shanghai. If convicted, she faces up to five years in prison. And she's not the only one, but one of several citizen journalists who shined the light on Wuhan in those early days and then were detained. At least one has reappeared and at least two have not. Then there's the story of a Saudi activist who has been sentenced to six years in prison for advocating something the government did anyway. CBS News correspondent Holly Williams has her story. Lujain al-Hathlul dared to take the wheel in Saudi Arabia when it was banned by the conservative Islamic Kingdom posting the evidence of her crimes on the internet in protest. She was arrested in 2018, ironically just weeks before Saudi Arabia's Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman finally gave women permission to drive, the last country in the world to do so. Alia al-Hathlul told us her sister, who's 31, was tortured, including with electrocution and rape threats. It is not good for the government to look like that they uh, accept the pressure from their own people. So she was punished, pure and simple, for daring to question the regime. Exactly. Al-Hathlul's family claims the torture was supervised by Saud al-Qatani, a former close associate of the Crown Prince, who also allegedly directed the 2018 murder of Jamal Khashoggi, a Saudi journalist who angered the regime. With time served and a partially suspended sentence, she could be released in three months, perhaps an attempt by Saudi Arabia to placate the incoming Biden administration. Holly Williams, CBS News, London. This has been America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network, produced by District Productive and Paul Woody Woodhull. I'm Gil Gross. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to America Changed Forever ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today, or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. 
Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at wondery.com survey.